I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this evening to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read God's Word under the heading of this evening, Repentance Is. Repentance Is from Joel chapter 2. We're going to begin our reading at verse 1. But our, we'll give particularly, particular attention to verses 12 through 14. But we'll give our attention to the reading of the whole chapter, and then afterwards we'll read Lord's Day 33. I believe all of our visitors are from local URC churches, but for those of you who may not be aware, in the United Reformed Church Federation, we typically engage in a lengthy study each year of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so today our consideration will be from Lord's Day 33 and Joel chapter 2. And we'll read both of those under the heading of Repentance Is from Joel chapter 2. We'll give our attention now, beginning in verse 1, to the Word of God. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them is a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like a crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army, drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish and all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way and they do not swerve from their paths." They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses and they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, and let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, 
let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given the early rain for your vindication. And He has poured down for you abundant rain as early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I am sending among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and the female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And then we'll turn in our Forms and Prayers book, which can be found in the pew in front of you, to Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 33 can be found on page 238. Page number 238 and the forms and prayer in front of you. It's the custom here at Trinity to corporately together respond to the answer. So I'm going to read the question and invite you congregation to respond with me as we confess our faith together. Beginning Lord's Day 33, question 88. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion to which we respond? Two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and to run away from it. 
What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. O blessed congregation, In 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the first sentence on that 95 theses said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when saying, Repent ye, intended that the whole of our life should be one of repentance. That the whole of our life should be one of repentance. I trust we have all had the experience of somebody saying, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And wondering if their repentance is truly genuine. Maybe it was something about their tone. They didn't sound sincere when they said sorry. And maybe you're hearing my Canadian there. Or maybe it was because they waited until they got caught to tell you that they were sorry. Or maybe after they say sorry, they go right back to the thing that they were doing before. And we wonder, are they genuinely repenting? This feeling gets at a biblical theme. That repentance is not just saying sorry. And all the Canadians groan. That's a joke. You can laugh. We're known in Canada for saying sorry. But repentance needs to be a change in our hearts. In repentance, there needs to be a change in our hearts. See, this is a prominent theme throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. That repentance, again, is not just saying sorry, but it's a turning from sin. And a turning to God in faith. And this is the problem that Joel is facing, we just read. In his short book, Judah has violated the covenant. They've sinned against God. But the problem that the prophet Joel is addressing isn't necessarily just that they have sinned. But have you turned back to God with the whole of your heart? Did you notice as we read through chapter 2, and if you were to read through the rest of the book, that the people that Joel is writing to are certainly religious. They're offering sacrifices, we read in chapter 1, verse 9. They have priests and ministers, we read in chapter 1, verse 13. And they even appear to be doing the right things. They're putting on sackcloth. They're mourning. They might be saying the right things. But the prophet Joel says God sees through that and is most concerned with their hearts. The religion of Jehovah, the God of the Bible, 
is not simply one of tradition or formulary or the posture of our bodies. But God more so cares about the posture of your heart. Even our Lord Jesus says, these people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. Matthew 15. Wasn't it King David who says, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That, O God, you do not despise, David goes on in Psalm 51. All of these verses speak to the essential nature of repentance not only being on our lips, not only being on our hands, but repentance needs to be in our hearts. Not the organ, but the center of who we are. God sees through religion to consider your heart. Even here this evening, while the world continues to be concerned and point their eyes to the war in Ukraine, while the world continues to be concerned and put their eyes on CNN and Fox News and what is Donald Trump doing? God's eyes are on your hearts this evening. And repentance is what brings delight to God. That which pleases God is faith and repentance. That's our theme for our time together this evening. That God is pleased when we embrace Him by faith and repent from our sins. He is delighted when His children say sorry and recommit themselves to His will. And so let not your expression of faith, going to church, giving an offering, pursuing good works, become your means of penance. God is not impressed with external obedience unto faith. No. Man looks at the outward religion. God looks at the heart. He is pleased when we embrace Him by faith and repentance. So I want to show you three things about repentance this evening. Repentance is turning to God. Repentance is internal. And it's a sign of true faith. Repentance is turning to God. It's internal. And it's a sign of true faith. Now at the time that Joel is writing, the days uh, to which he is speaking to were both politically dark and spiritually dark. And so we read in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, that God raises up a minor prophet by the name of Joel, whose name means my God is Yahweh, so that he can speak to the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem during a time of great crisis. What was that crisis? Well, Judah was an agricultural society. And Joel records that the greatest natural disaster in Judean history has just taken place, we read in verse 2. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of your father? 
And what took place there was that God sent clouds and herds and pillars of locusts to the nation of Judah. In fact, all that language we read in chapter 2 about the appearance of horses, the army, uh, armies against Judah jumping over the walls and coming into your houses and looking like horses galloping across the prairies are actually describing the insect, a locust. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. It says that they are actually so thick, they even seem as clouds of darkness. And this was so devastating upon an agricultural society that it decimated their economy. Chapter 1, verse 11, talks about how devastating this was. They were decimated. Chapter 1, verse 13, it says the people became so poor they couldn't even bring offerings into the temple. There seemed to be little hope for God's people in Judah And so the prophet does what all the prophets do. He helps them interpret this event. And throughout the Bible, locusts very often represent God's judgment upon sins. You, of course, remember that locusts coming upon Egypt was one of God's ten plagues. Exodus chapter 10 says that God would send locusts who would devour everything in the field. It was a sign to Pharaoh of God's divine judgment. Likewise, when Israel was about to enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy 28, God outlines, if you disobey Me, these curses will come upon you. And one of those curses was a plague of locusts. It should be clear to the student of the Bible that if Judah has been unfaithful, if Israel has been unfaithful, that these plagues would become their inheritance, not God's blessing. And so the prophet Joel stands up and says, that's what this is. It's divine judgment. Because it is a dark day, spiritually speaking. But God raised up Joel for such a time as this. Joel's main message is not only that God judges, but that repentance is how to get back into God's good graces. Yet even now, verse 12, declares the Lord, Return to Me with your whole heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't miss what Joel is saying here, my friends. Even now. That it's not too late. In fact, it's never too late to turn to the Lord in repentance. There is much hope in these words. Yet even now. In the Hebrew, it's actually full of emphasis. That even though they've abused God's forbearance, even though they've scorned God's opportunities to return in the past, even though they closed the door to God, He still waits for Judah. That He might pour out His mercy upon them. 
And isn't the most important word in verse 12 that word now? Here that God shows us through the prophet Joel the acceptable time to turn to Him. Now. It doesn't say tomorrow, rend your hearts. When you're 18, turn to Me. When you've got your life figured out, then you can come to God. He is saying, while the locusts are on your doorstep, when you're politically devastated, when your country is spiritually dark, when sin has gone unconfessed, your life's a mess, God says, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Seek God now for He is near. Call on Him while He may be found, Isaiah says. And return. Maybe one of the most important words of the Old Testament. And it's easy to remember, which all Hebrew students love. Shuv. Return. And it conveys this idea that God is not only calling His people to come to Him, but that they have to turn from something. That if we're going to repent and return to the Lord, we are going to have to leave something else behind. In fact, it's the same word used when God's people returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. They had to shuv, turn. They had to leave behind Babylon. They had to leave behind the riches of that city. They had to leave behind their friends. They had to leave maybe even family behind. And they had to turn to God. That's what repentance means. You have to leave something behind. You have to be quit with it. And God is calling Judah, and He's calling us this evening to turn from the old self, our catechism points out. That something needs to die within us. Now here at Trinity, we've been going through the book of Romans here in the morning service, and we have learned through the Apostle Paul's own testimony that sin can take on a life of its own. Paul even describes sin in his own heart as a law within his members. See, it's almost easier, isn't it, to turn from something. A person, a place, a thing. But what the catechism is asking us to do is to turn from ourself. To turn from who we are. To turn from, as Paul says, the real me. How do we turn from something so powerful and something so close? Well, our catechism very wisely and helpfully actually gives us three ways to kill the old man. And it says, first, we need to be genuinely sorry for sin. Your sinus, the author of the catechism, actually clarifies what he meant by this is that we need to have a knowledge of sin. 
And that in the light of that knowledge, let it break your heart. Let it break your heart. And see how good God is. And to even shed tears. That to look the ugliness of sin in the face and see how degrading it is. And how it spoils the image of God. How it destroys families and friendships. And to have grief over that. To be sorry, our catechism says. But second, you can't only just be sorry, as we already mentioned this evening, but we need to be filled with regret and more and more to hate it. Not feel bad about the repercussions of sin. That's not what it's saying. Not saying just feel bad that you got caught. But to hate it because it is offensive to God. One of the most shocking things in the Bible is when David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. And you think, how would I feel if I was Uriah right now? You commit adultery. You murder Uriah. How can you say against you and you alone? David isn't saying that he hasn't sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba, or even the whole nation. But he's saying, the principal offense, the person I've offended the most, is my God whom I love. He's looking at the ugliness of sin and seeing how it promised him life and pleasure and only delivered death. He hates his sin. But third, the catechism says, you can't just turn to God, you also need to run away from your sin. Too many sins are committed. Too many lives are ruined. Because when sin presents itself to us, we do not run to Jesus. Remember the good example of Joseph when Potiphar's wife presented himself to, herself to him and tried to seduce him. He ran from her. It's so simple, but it's so true. We need to run away from friends who tempt us to drunkenness. We need to run away from the nudity-filled TV shows. We need to run away from vanity and selfishness. Get away from me, sin and Satan. And turn to the Lord. The Bible says, Joel says, that's the heart of repentance. Turning from sin to God. There's a wonderful example of this in the New Testament. The prodigal son, he had to turn away from the far country and return to his father. He was willing to serve him to be the least of his servants. But isn't there a beautiful principle there? Instead, he received his father's embrace. Repentance in this famous story is much more than regret. It's a change in direction. It entails a turning from sin and a trust in Christ. Repentance is turning to God. But not only this, the prophet Joel goes on and he begins to speak about 
the internal nature of repentance. As I mentioned just a moment ago, sometimes the dying away of the old self involves a literal running away from a situation. Again, think of Joseph. To avoid sin, he had to leave his cloak behind and run out of the building. And sometimes we are called to make a physical choice to not go to our friend's house when they're drinking. We have to choose not to go on our phones in the middle of the night. That's what's called the mortification, the killing of sin, the putting to death of our sinful nature can require physical action in our lives. But we also need to recognize this evening that repentance is spiritual in nature and is therefore an internal reality. The prophet gets at this in verse 12 and 13. Return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That's the physical side. But also, rend your hearts. Not your garments. Repentance is spiritual. It's internal. Now in the Old Testament, the idea of repentance is often associated with an outward display. We read in 1 Kings 21, King Ahab tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes when he repented. When Israel repented in the book of Nehemiah, they fasted and wore sackcloth. Nehemiah 9 verse 1. And so when somebody rends their garments in the Old Testament, they stood there naked. Exposed before God, hiding nothing. That's what it represented. So when God is saying, rend your heart, He says, make your heart bare. Expose yourself before Me. Don't hide anything with God. See, repentance is not superficial. It cannot be mechanistic. As if we could return to God's favor by saying the right words, bowing in the correct posture. Again, it's not about the posture of your body, it's about the posture of your heart. The heart of people is actually one of the great issues in the Minor Prophets. Again, I say that you know, we need to get this because uh, God goes through this over and over again. He wants your heart. Not your gold, not your silver. Not your offering. First and foremost, God wants your heart. Remember that God rebuked the people of Amos even though they made sacrifices and celebrated feasts. He says, I hate and I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Amos 5.21 In Hosea, the people say, come, let us return to the Lord. But when God looks at their heart, He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud and the dew that goes away early. It's internal. That God can see through the remote, formulaic repentance to consider the condition of your hearts. True repentance is not merely external, but is internal. Now sometimes we think 
Well, good. That means I don't have to give anything up. I can go to the confessional booth and give my confession and then poof, it's gone. And that's a dangerous idea because what it suggests is that repentance is not painful. But look what God says in the prophet. Rend your heart? Rend means to tear to pieces. Remember what David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifice of God is a broken heart. The dying away of the old self, the mortification of sin, is a painful experience. It can cost us a lot. Paul says, I have to beat my body into submission. Jesus said, we have to take up our cross and follow Him. Repentance can be a painful thing. And I want to add an application here. That even though repentance is internal and between God and man, it doesn't mean repentance doesn't need to be verbalized and confessed to other people. James says in James 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. It's internal, but it also has a verbal aspect to it. And that's where repentance can cost us. It can be challenging and hard, but the blessing we receive from it is so much greater than what it costs. Because this leads us to the most important element of repentance. The recognition that there is pardon with God. Sinclair Ferguson says, only when we turn away from looking at our own sin and look to the face of God and His grace do we begin to repent. He goes on, only by seeing that there is grace and forgiveness with Him would we ever dare to repent and return to the Father. And that's exactly what Joel is saying. Look what he says in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. The call to return to God is the call to return to a Yahweh who longs to be in relationship with His people. Who is gracious, giving unmerited favor. Who is merciful, not giving us what our sins deserve. Who is slow to anger. He is patient and abounding in love and relents to send disaster. That's the God who calls us to repent. Not a cold and austere Jesus, but a Jesus who is all of these things. And did you notice, Joel says, return to the Lord your God? Emphasizing the personal relationship between God and His people. Because God is faithful even when we are faithless. Now this list of attributes that Joel rehearses here would have actually have been familiar to the Jews. 
Remember, there's an infamous story at Mount Sinai when it took the people of Israel less than 40 days to break covenant with God and commit adultery, or idolatry, I should say, in the forming of a golden calf. You remember that story. And the Lord in His anger wanted to destroy Israel, but we read in the book of Exodus that Moses fell on his face and interceded for the people of Israel. And in Exodus 34, the Lord appears to Moses and He says this, Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. Israel was faithless, but God was faithful. The exact same attributes of God are listed to Moses that Joel lists to Israel. But there's only one variation between Joel 2 and Exodus 34. Did you catch it? Instead of saying, I will by no means clear the guilty, that's what Exodus 34 says, Joel says, he relents. Return to the Lord your God, He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents. Why does He change it? I think what Joel is doing is he's reminding us why God relented in his first place. Because Moses fell on his face and pleaded with God not to destroy his people. And so it is with us today. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. He is loving. Because we have a mediator. Christ Jesus the Lord who is a new and a better Moses interceding for us. It is because of Jesus' work as our mediator, you are called to return to the Lord your God. We can trust Him, even though we don't deserve His mercy. To quote Ferguson again, only when the grace of God appears on the horizon offering forgiveness will the sunshine of the love of God melt our hearts and draw us back to Him. That's the coming to life of the new. Not only do I turn away from what's evil, but now I turn to what's good. Receiving the grace, the mercy, the love, the patience of Jesus Christ, my Savior. And He raises us to new life. You have a new life in Jesus this evening. Paul says we were buried with Him in baptism in order that we too might walk in the newness of life. He goes on, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New life in Jesus. The catechism goes on to speak of the rising to life of a new and being a wholehearted joy in God through Christ. 
that this new life we're given is a life of love and delight with God. We don't obey Him because we have to. We obey Him because we get to. Because we want to. That's the new life in Christ. The third and final thing I want to show you for our time together this evening is that repentance is a sign of true faith. See, from the beginning of the Bible, it's been clear that there's never, repentance has never been about a sense of regret. It's not just about a deep sorrow, but it's about a return to a life of faith in God. It's a life marked by the light of God in our lives. What this means then is that faith and repentance are inseparably bound. That any true gospel experience needs to involve both faith and repentance. That if we truly believe in Christ, we must be a confessing people. And if we truly repent of our sins, we must do so in faith. Let's clear something up. It's impossible to be an unrepentant Christian. Just as, it's, just as there cannot be a repentant unbeliever. Repentance is just the other side of the coin of faith. Now, you might be like me and you'll find question 91 somewhat curious in the catechism. Why do we go from speaking about genuine conversion or repentance to begin talking about good works? What does good works have to do with repentance? But in the Old Testament, they often spoke of good works as the genuine evidence that repentance has taken place. That this was the sure sign that you had truly been converted. That you were turning away from your sin and turning to God and seeking to live for Him. And so Sinclair Ferguson actually notes in the Old Testament there are three marks that provided evidence that a genuine conversion had taken place. The prophets taught that you had to have faith. That's the first mark. The second mark is that you would begin to obey God's commands. And the third, that they would turn from wickedness and live for God's glory. See, what the catechism is doing is it's just drawing attention to what the Bible is teaching. By pairing these two ideas, repentance should be seen as the seed which produces good works. The seed is planted in us. And as our spiritual growth and faith deepens, it flowers into seeking to serve God all the days of our life. Good works are not those that are done by our own ingenuity or the ingenuity of a church or our ingenuity of religion, but good works are done out of faith in conformity to what God has shown us from His Word and for His glory. This is what the prophet Joel is recalling us to this evening. To seek to please God. Not to seek to please Him with the strength of our own hands. Or again, the ingenuity of our minds. 
but to please him with a life of faith and repentance. Have you repented from your sins this evening? I'm not talking about just saying sorry. I'm talking about a real repentance. A forsaking of sin. A turning to God out of faith in your hearts and a love for Jesus Christ. Have you come to Him? If not, remember the prophet's Joel's word, yet even now. Today is the day of salvation. Come, tear apart your heart in the presence of God, but know that He is the one who can mend it and put it back together. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks that You are the God of redeemed sinners. That You do not require the gold and silver of our pockets. If, if You did, we would give it. You are not the God who requires all these sacrifices and burnt offerings. A God of rote religion or mechanistic ways of going about our lives. But You are the God of hearts who have bowed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, not only for my brothers and sisters' bodies this evening, but I pray for their hearts. That You would be pleased to work in their hearts a conviction that sin is not the way of blessedness. But the way of blessedness is the forsaking of sin and the embracing of Christ by faith. Draw us to Yourself, near to Thy breast, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.